And we'll start in verse 1. It says, And he said unto them, Jesus is speaking, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now, this is a parallel passage to uh, uh, the book of Matthew. And Jesus adds here, the, the Holy Spirit, the writer of Mark, which we believe to be John Mark, is mentioned in this gospel as a, a very young man. He adds the words, with power. And boy, I'll tell you what, you pick up a commentary and, and try to read this and say, what does it mean that there'll be some here that do not taste death till they've seen the kingdom of God come with power? And boy, I mean, you just get all kinds of answers. Uh, probably the most ridiculous is that John, the beloved disciple, is still alive in a cave somewhere uh, waiting to, for Jesus to come and he'll walk out of the cave and said, I've been alive here all the time. Well, uh, uh, God could do that if he wants, but you know what God tells his servants to do? Testify of him. And John couldn't do that closed up in a cave for all these thousands of some odd years. So uh, let's not uh, investigate the fantastic. Let's just look at what the Bible actually says here. It says, truly, that's what the word verily, it's our modern word, verify. Uh, I say unto you that there shall be some of them, so it's more than one, so our John thing's out the window already, that there is more than one person that is standing right here in the presence of Jesus as he spoke these words, which shall not taste of death. They're not going to die in this physical body. Uh, it is impossible for the believer to be overcome by death. That's why we taste it. We have to taste its bitterness as our body will lay in repose and be buried. But I'll tell you what, the moment this body hits the ground in death, I'll be more alive than I've ever been before. I'll be with my Savior. And I'll tell you, if you're a believer in Christ... The one thing that you should not desire is some sad sack funeral where everybody stands around and says, Oh, I miss him. Hey, I want people to be happy for me when I'm gone. Because I'll be far better off than anybody left here on earth. And so let's rejoice in the things that we're to rejoice in. And be comforted with the things that are in this Word. Now, that's free. Nothing to do with the sermon this morning, but just had to put it in there. Amen? And so, as we read on, it says they're not going to taste death till they've seen the kingdom of God come with power. They're going to see the kingdom of God come, and Mark adds here, with power. If we read down in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul's trying to straighten out some things that are going on in the Corinthian church, and none of it's good. I mean, they've got problems that are just uh, beyond the, 
uh, the scope of what we would even consider Christianity. I mean, there's trouble everywhere. And, and Paul reminds them, I just want to read you the verse. He says, for the kingdom of God is not in word. It's not just something we talk about, but in power. The kingdom of God is supposed to do things. Now, we understand that there is a coming kingdom where Jesus Christ, as the Prince of Peace, will rule this world from the city of peace. The New Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that the earthquake that will happen uh, at the Battle of Armageddon when Jesus' foot touches the Mount of Olives is going to rearrange the geography of the known world. God's going to straighten some things out. He's going to smooth some things off. The, the entire land of Israel is going to be lifted up as one huge, smooth plain. And the best of our understanding is over that smooth plain that will encompass all of present-day Israel, uh, all of Jordan, parts of Saudi Arabia, the whole way to the Iraqi border. Uh, all of Syria and Lebanon will all be incorporated in the land of Israel. And the New Jerusalem will hover over the top. And the valley of the Dead Sea will be full of water, living water. And there'll be fishermen at the Dead Sea. That's what the Bible tells us is going to happen when the kingdom comes. That has yet to happen, my friend. The Dead Sea is still just as dead as it was when Jesus walked on this earth. So that can't possibly be the kingdom that Jesus was talking about. Otherwise, we would have to resort to the fantastic idea that some of the disciples are huddled in a cave somewhere, living in total seclusion from the world, totally against the Word of God, which doesn't work. You see, if we're going to understand the Bible... One thing we have to make sure is that our understanding of this passage doesn't contradict the plain knowledge of another one. The Bible is not a group of contradictions. It's one simple message from God. So where can we find some light that, that will help us understand what Jesus is talking about with this kingdom and power, what I'd like you to do is turn to Luke chapter 17. And someone says, Pastor, where in the world do you get all these verses going from here to there and make connections all over your Bible? Well, that comes from your uh, daily Bible reading schedule. As you read your entire Bible, you'll be able to find verses and the Holy Spirit will bring verses to your mind that you can put together. But in verse 21 of chapter 17, uh, let's read verse 20 as well. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is where? All nice and loud? Within you. Do you think that might be the answer 
to Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, that the kingdom that Jesus is speaking about is not the physical kingdom here on earth, but the spiritual kingdom that is within us. Now, what is a kingdom? Can I give you the simplest definition I know of? A kingdom is the area under the protection, influence, and direction of the king. That's why a man can say, This house is my castle, if it's under his direction. His influence, his protection, that, then, then he could actually say that. And, and we should endeavor to make our homes a, a little picture of what God wants to do in the lives of individuals. Amen? It's the area controlled by the king. Well, does the king reign within you? supposed to. The king is supposed to reign within us. Now, we understand that we do not live in a kingdom and we do not live under the authority of a king. But... We, we could, uh, by just way of illustration, how many of you remember what living in New York City in uh, the early 1990s was like? Under our mayor, David Dinkins, and his predecessors? How many people remember what New York City was like back then? Uh, how many remember the changes that, I mean, were almost miraculous in the first years of the Giuliani administration? Does anybody remember that? Is there anybody here upset with all the horrible things that Giuliani did? I mean, like getting rid of the murders and sl- slowing the crime and cleaning up the ghettos. And I mean, the first time I came to New York City... Uh, I was traveling with Brother Clayton. I thought they were opening up a burned car lot alongside the highways coming into the city. I mean, we were counting the burned out hulks of stolen cars along the cross Bronx and then down through uh, the thing. It was just, and we're sitting, what kind of place is this? I'd never been to New York City before. Praise God, it's not like that anymore. Even though we're not under a king, the the mayor does have some influence and and some direction on how things are going, just as the president does over our nation. And we're going to see things change. Now, you don't have to be a prophet to know that it's not going to be for the better. Because the things that are in this book are being ignored. And when a nation ignores what's in the Bible, only bad things can follow. But yet Jesus said, you can have the kingdom of God in you. And there's going to be people standing here that are going to see that kingdom come with power. 
Now, this is one of those sermons that I wish I had about six hours to preach, because I, I think I could do it. Of course, everybody would be fainting and uh, dehydrating and passing out. And, and so, uh, we're, I'm going to do my best to keep within the normal time constraints, but uh, you're going to have to listen close as I don't preach fast. I try never to do that, but... What I believe we have here in Mark chapter 9, if you've ever read through Mark chapter 9, it's a seeming series of almost unrelated stories. The first story is Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration from, with the disciples. And many people have said, is that not the fulfillment of the prophecy that, that Jesus made in verse 1, that the disciples saw the kingdom of God with power? Uh, when Jesus was transfigured into his glorified state and talked with Moses and Elijah. And I'm going to tell you, I don't believe that's the total fulfillment, but I believe that that's something God's given us to help us understand what the kingdom coming in its power is going to be like. And then they get down from the Mount of Transfiguration and there's the man with the demon-possessed son. And uh, many fathers have wanted to quote that verse uh, God, help my son, he's a lunatic. I mean, that's what it says in there. And, and uh, uh, of course, sometimes that's the case and sometimes it isn't. But uh, here it certainly was. His son was possessed by a demon. The disciples couldn't help him. Almost seems unrelated. No sooner did they finish that than the disciples have a conversation about who's the greatest. Now, how can that be connected to all the rest of it? And we end the chapter with Jesus giving us uh, a great hyperbole is the word, a super exaggeration of physical truth to illustrate how vital, how important the spiritual truth connected is. And what I'd like for us to understand today, and I believe we'll find this in the Scriptures, is that the Holy Spirit, through the storytelling of Mark here and the relating of these events is setting the parameters, the boundaries, we might say, uh, the markers of what the coming kingdom with power is alike. And if we had time to preach a sermon twice, we'd go to Acts chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. And, and I promise you, we'll find these exact same things being brought again. Maybe not necessarily in the same order, but the kingdom of God came with power in Acts chapter 2. How was that power demonstrated? 3,000 men got saved and baptized in one day. How much more power would you want with that than that? A few months later, we have 5,000 men getting saved. And added to the church. And people were added to the church daily. And if we put those figures together, the early church of Jerusalem within a year or so after Jesus' ascension into heaven had about 12,000 members, very conservatively, could have been twice that size. That's why they needed seven deacons. Sometimes we get a little church of five people and they got four deacons. Doesn't make much sense, does it? 
You see, the church needed to operate, and it was miraculous. The kingdom of God did come with power, and I want you to understand that there is a connection between the kingdom of God reigning within you and the local assembly of the church of which you're supposed to be a part. You can't be in right relationship with the kingdom, with God reigning in your life, inside your heart, if you don't have a right and proper relationship with the local assembly of which is the body of Christ. And so, what I want us to do is go through these stories, and I want us to look for some things. I want us to look for some characteristics. I want us to look for some things that might help us understand what this phrase means, the kingdom of God come with power. Because the men that were standing there, some of them, not all of them necessarily, but some of them were going to see this. They were going to experience it. And by the way, the kingdom isn't a private thing necessarily. You can't have someone live inside of you other than the Holy Spirit of God. But that kingdom is supposed to be lived out corporately. That's what church is all about. Are we still together? I've got to have the Holy Spirit of God reigning in my life. That makes my life the kingdom of God within me. I bring that kingdom within me to the place that the Holy Spirit has designated, which is His church, a Bible-believing, and I believe it ought to have Baptist in the name church. And then together, we serve Christ as His body. The reason we have schism and we have problems inside the church is because somebody in the church is not properly aligned with the kingdom. It's not inside of them. And that's a serious, serious issue. It's got to be straightened out. And so let's start here in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart from the, by themselves and was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. Now, we're not going to take time to read Matthew's account, but Matthew said that they were speaking of his decease or of the coming crucifixion, which he should accomplish in Jerusalem. They were talking to them. If you read Peter's account in his epistles, he said this is something that angels desire to look into, that all of heaven did not understand how God Himself was going to redeem us by the sacrifice of Himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus was explaining this to Moses and Elijah. The fulfillment of the prophecies and everything that they taught about God was standing right there. Now, Peter had to say something. I mean, have you ever been in a room with some really important people that you want to meet? 
and you just started racking your brain to think of something you could say so at least when it was all over you could have bragging rights to say, I talked to! I've been in some preacher meetings like that and I always just sat down in the back and left all the important people do their things. It's the thing I love about Heartland meetings is the most quote-unquote important of the men is willing to just come up and sit down beside you and talk a little while because nobody's impressed with their own importance. You see, that was what the problem was here. You see, you can't have the kingdom of God. James put it this way, and respect of persons. You see, Jesus is not ashamed, Hebrews chapter 2, to call us brethren. I don't understand that. But Jesus has no peers. It's always a, an amazing thing to me. I, I, I meet people, and, uh, and, and to this day... Uh, I don't call Brother Clayton Larry. That's his first name. Other preachers do because they're his age and that. I worked for Brother Clayton uh, as a young graduate out of Bible college, and I always called him Brother Clayton. He's coming to preach our missions conference. And guess what? I'm going to call him Brother Clayton. You know why? Because I want to give him respect and honor. It's just part of growing up. Uh, We didn't call adults by their first name when I was a kid. And I remember that was the new thing. If you're really going to be in, don't call me, mister. Just just call me Joe. I said, listen, Mr. Joe, you don't want me to have to go through what I'm going to have to go through if my dad hears me calling you by your first name. You really don't want that. Would you just allow me to put Mr. in front so I don't get it when I get home? Amen. Because uh, uh, my dad wanted me to learn how to respect people. But when it comes to Jesus, there are no peers. That's why it's so blasphemous. Jesus is my homie. Man, I, I saw that t shirt walking down Steinway Street or somewhere in the neighborhood the other day. I just wanted to go up and rip it off the guy and hand it back to him. But you go to jail for those things, and and if he's that dishonest and disrespectful with God, my rebuke is probably not going to solve a thing. I'll just go find somebody who wants to hear the truth. Amen. But Peter made the mistake. He said, let's build three tabernacles. Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, tabernacle was a place of worship. Jesus is first. Then Moses and Elijah. We know they're not anywhere near as important as you are, Lord, but that's Moses standing right there. I got to say something. And a cloud overshadowed them. Verse 7. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. 
And suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. Could I challenge you that this is the first of the parameters of the kingdom of God? If the kingdom of God is going to be in your life with power, it's Jesus only with themselves. As the pastor of this church, I have labored since before day one to keep our church out of the great personality battles that go on in some Christian circles, even fundamental Baptist circles. I've told some stories, and rather disparagingly, because I mean them to be that way. I was in a preacher's meeting one time. Uh, just out of Bible college, and we were sitting there, and I mean, it was great preaching. And Dr. So-and-so showed up. I won't give his name. The man who was preaching the sermon stopped preaching so he could personally have the privilege of recognizing Dr. So-and-so as he walked in late. And Dr. So-and-so walked in late purposefully so that he could be recognized. You say, how do you know that? Because that's the way he lived. It's a tragedy. But let me tell you, the kingdom of God is not with power. When we recognize any human being. I had a fellow visit the church years and years ago. And... uh, Man, he just spoke glowingly. He said, boy, I love the way you preach the Word. and uh, It's just great. I learn more about the Bible here than just about anywhere else. And I, I've learned to listen closely. When he said, just about anywhere else, I knew there was something else coming. And it wasn't long that he invited my wife and I over to their home for dinner. And, and we arranged appropriate babysitting and were there. And the first thing he showed me was this book written by this man who in the 50s went into Africa and healed thousands of people. I mean, they had busloads of wheelchairs and crutches from people who were healed. How many people know what it was like in the 50s in Africa? They didn't have busloads of crutches and wheelchairs. If they did, it was brought in by this crooked, wicked evangelist team so they could take pictures of it and make claims that nobody had the ability to fly to Africa and back up and prove how wrong they were. And in this book, it had a picture of him with a halo of fire around his head. And he looked, he showed me this picture. He said, see, this is a real picture. I said, yeah, it is. I said, all you got to do is cut the negative and put it in there. I know how to splice negatives together. I mean, come on. He says, you don't believe this, do you? I said, no. I said, this is so ridiculous. You're going to sit here and give veneration and worship this man and ignore things that are in this book. Maybe that's why he didn't come back to church. But if that's what you are and what you're about, you're not welcome here. This church is not for you. 
We don't pray to saints here. Because saints ought to be praying. Because if you're saved, you're a saint. And the kingdom of God is supposed to be in you. And you know it even happens in church. People say, well, I can't be super spiritual like the pastor. And so they'll pick someone else out. Can I challenge you? That same thing happens on Rikers Island and in bars and clubs and gutters every weekend and every night. And people will go, oh, you know, I got a little problem. But my problem is as bad as his problem. I mean, he's really bad. And then you go over and say, now everybody here says you're the worst drunk in this bar. What's the next sentence out of his word? Well, I knew a guy who would drink me under the table seven days a week. And you go find that guy and he'll tell you a worse story yet. Because there is no end to human depravity, my friend. If you're hoping that your righteousness is going to be better than the guy next to you, just make sure your next door neighbor's not Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, when they caught him, finally took him to trial, I think they were only able to find him guilty on nine murders out of about 60 or 70 he claimed that he committed. The thing that is, oh, we, he was really a nice guy. Would you define nice to me? That, that's not nice. That's evil. Solomon put it this way, for a piece of bread, that man will transgress. That's why we've got to get our eyes off people today, my friend. You know, that's why God is never going to use men like Billy Graham to bring salvation or revival to this country. He's never going to use some great preacher. I mean, we have people that are uh, uh, praying and debating and I want to be the next great evangelist. Well, how about... Well, we'll get to that in a little bit. Cup of cold water. Forget about the great stuff. Jesus is going to deal with that. You see, you've got to get past people if the kingdom of God is going to be first in your life. It's got to be Jesus only. I watched some great men who were loyal to the Bible college I went to as that Bible college changed, they did not. But they stayed loyal to the institution, even as it did. I'll tell you one of the reasons I love Heartland is because I can't support my Bible college. But you know who one of the men that bailed my Bible college out in some of its darkest hours so that 
There was a school there that I could graduate from. That's how bad it was. His name was Sam Davison, the president of Heartland. He was just a pastor in, in Oklahoma City, and he came and he helped. You know, I can't give my money to Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. I wouldn't send my dog there if I had one. And I'm sorry. But they don't teach the truth there anymore. Period. Oh, you might learn how to get saved. But the last time I checked, getting saved is the beginning, not the end. Amen? But maybe I can support the men who helped me graduate. And that's why I love Heartland. Because their loyalty is to the truth, not to an institution. That was Peter's problem. I could go on all morning just this one step, but we need to, we need to get uh, beyond this. And I want you to look here, even as God spoke from heaven, and in verse 11, they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration... And they ask him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must come first? That was the prophecy in the book of Malachi, that Elijah would come before the coming of the Lord. Who was there on the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, Elijah was, and so they were saying, Hey, is this a fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy? And Jesus said, No. Elias has already come. His name was John the Baptist. And they've already done to him what they wanted to do. Peter, you've got to get over this personality thing. You've got to stop this following men. It's not going to work. It's got to be Jesus only if it's going to be the kingdom of God with power. Amen? If you don't say amen, we're going to start over again. Don't worry, we only got 15 more points. No. So we get down to verse 14. And when he was come with his, to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And here's the story. We have a man with a son that's demon-possessed. Jesus had already given authority to the disciples to take care of these things. And they had already cast out many demons and healed many sick people. But they couldn't do this one. Something was wrong. Now, I want you to think a minute about the father. He had been to the Pharisees. He had been to the priest. He had been to the doctors. Finally, he heard about Jesus and he came to his disciples. And Jesus was gone and the disciples failed him. How much hope would you have at this point? Would it be fair to say about nothing? He had tried everything? Or he thought he had tried everything? Because one thing he hadn't tried yet. Jesus alone. And you know what his cry was? Let's read that verse. We need to read that verse together. Verse 23. We'll read verse 24 as well. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, 
I, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Oh, I wish we could spend the whole morning right there. If you haven't been there, you need to get there, my friend. You see, you don't believe Jesus into your heart. He has to come. All you have to do is invite Him. That's what salvation is. And the disciples said, why couldn't we do this alone? And Jesus healed the son and sent him away. And Jesus' answer was without fasting and prayer. Now, what does fasting and prayer accomplish in the life of a believer, my friend? Could I challenge you that the purpose of fasting and prayer is to get me out of the way... So that I can trust more fully in Jesus. Can we say amen to that? You see, it's got to be Jesus only, not personality. It's got to be Jesus only. There is no room for even me. i got to get rid of me. Fasting and prayer gets rid of me. But no sooner had they learned this great truth than we get down here to verse 33. And he came to Capernaum and being in the house, they asked him, uh, what is it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. You, can you get this? Peter, James, and John had seen Moses and Elijah and were rebuked by the very voice of God for elevating Moses and Elijah to peerdom with Jesus Christ. They get down to the bottom of the mountain and even the things that God had told them that they had the ability and had given them special power to do, they couldn't do it without fasting and prayer, because they were getting in the way of what Jesus was trying to do. Do you see the parameters for the kingdom? You see, the kingdom can't come with power when my eyes are on men. They can't come with power until I have a total dependence upon Jesus Christ alone. You see, they had gotten so used to seeing God do miracles through them, they got start looking at themselves. They had to get rid of self. That does not happen easily, my friend. It takes a lot of work to get rid of self. Well, then, they start arguing about who's greatest, and I love Jesus' answer to this one. He gets a little child and sets it in the middle. Now, if you get a little child, two, three, four years old, And think about putting them in a circle of these 12 big old burly disciples. Scare the living daylights out of the poor kid. I'll I'll bet he was sticking his head in Jesus' arm here and trying to hide. And Jesus said, except you 
be converted and become his little child, you shall not even enter the kingdom of God. He said, do you want me to show you who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? It's this little child. Because I'll promise you this, even in the spite of all the things that were going on around them, that little child was paying 100% attention to Jesus. Amen. See, that little child wasn't worried about anything. And you know what? You wouldn't be worried about anything either if you were sitting on Jesus' lap, now would you? I've had some adults with deep emotional problems over the years, and if you think I'm talking about you, I'm not. You're not alone. There's a lot of people out there. Say, I just wish... I could be a little child and sit on my father's lap again. Hey, let me tell you something. That's what Jesus wants to do today. But if you're too busy being his helper, you'll never get his compassion. If you're being too busy thinking about what you can do or what you're struggling with, well, guess what? You're never going to be able to enjoy the comfort that he gives. You see, that's a parameter of the kingdom, is it not? And then we get down to the end of the chapter here. Well, let's pick up verse 41. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Could I challenge you that many people are willing to line up to do some important thing? But really serving Christ is doing the unimportant things is doing the things that nobody knows you've done is doing the things that are right when no one's looking when no one's there to hand out credit you know sometimes uh, I've had conversation with my sons and I said well dad didn't I do a good job All, all you're doing is giving me the wrong things I said, I know that. I said, but the problem with our world today is there's way too much praise of things that are absolutely unpraiseworthy. If you're serving Christ, there's nobody going to be standing around saying thank you. That's reserved till we get to heaven. Because once we're in heaven... You will understand that even the least thing that you accomplished for Jesus Christ had absolutely very little to do with you. At best, you are nothing more than the pipe which which God's love runs through. That is the greatest accomplishment of the Christian life. is to be the conduit, is to be the uh, the pipe, is to be the wire that what God wants to do goes through. 
That's what Jesus wants. That's a parameter of the kingdom. Now we get to the last one. And again, each of these we could, could have spent a whole Sunday on, but I don't want to lose point, uh, point, I don't want to lose the big picture because they all work together. They're all in this chapter for a reason to give us a look. Look at verse 42. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe on me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life main than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and their fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and their fire is not quenched the third time, and if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into life, uh, enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm dieth not and their fire is not quenched. Now, those are some pretty incredible words, are they not, my friend? And we have some, some just some unbelievable perverts in history that have thought that Actually, they should mutilate themselves in fulfillment of these verses. I'm sorry. Uh, there, there is very little help for someone that uh, willfully ignorant. You, you've got to be on purpose stupid to do that kind of stuff. It's not by accident. You see, we've all met people over the years. Yeah, I went to church once, and I had a cold, and I coughed, and that mean old lady turned around, she looked at me, and she made me feel like I was a worm for coughing in church, and I couldn't control it, and I've never been back since. I've met people like that. They were offended. And you know what the Bible says? If we had the choice between offending someone and having a millstone, the smallest millstones weigh a quarter of a ton, 500 pounds. Big ones weigh a lot more of that wrapped around your neck and thrown into the sea, well, what's going to happen? You're going to drown. He said, if you had choice between being drowned and offending someone, choose drowning. Now, that's a hyperbole. That's an exaggeration. But the point there is, if you're going to live life, you better pray to God. That he works in your life to keep you from hurting and offending other people. But then three times. He says, if your hand, if your foot, if your eye offends you. I 
I've heard sermons preached that we need to be careful not to offend weaker Christians. And then they always come in and say, but the weaker Christian has a right to grow up. Because they want to offend people, really do. Uh, Can I challenge you? That Jesus said one time, you better be careful about being offended, offending others. And three times, you better be careful about being offended. So that's a parameter of the kingdom of God. Because when it is Jesus only, I'm not going to offend others and hinder their walk with God. I'm going to encourage them in it. And when it's Jesus only, I am triple. not going to allow anyone to offend me and keep me out of the way of serving Christ. Does that make sense? See, there are people here looking for some excuse not to get saved. Jesus said, if you had the choice between cutting your right hand off and getting saved, cut your hand off. Lose your eye. Lose your foot. Be lame. Be crippled all your life. Be half blind. You're far better off in that position and having life then to hold on to your offense, whatever it might be, and miss heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, can we find these things in Acts chapter 2? In Acts chapter 3? Acts chapter 4? Acts chapter 5? Let me tell you, we can find all of these things in the book of Acts because the kingdom of God came with power. And when they started pointing fingers to the disciples saying, because of the attendant phenomena of speaking in the other languages, what did the disciples do? Hey, wait a minute, it's not about us, it's about Jesus Christ. It's about the fulfillment of the prophecies. When they healed the man... That was lame and they were brought into account before the very men that had sat in council and brought Jesus to the cross. Humanly speaking, of course, because we know that Jesus willingly went to the cross. They said, wait a minute, it's not about us. What was the testimony of the Pharisees and the scribes themselves? They took notice of them that they had been with Jesus. And when Ananias and Sapphira tried to get a little of that glory for themselves, the Holy Spirit struck them dead right on the spot. You see, the kingdom of God is with power because it takes the power of God to get my eyes off other men and other human beings. It's only the power of God that gets control of what's inside this heart here. You say, 
I'm struggling. I can't stop sin. Uh, I'll tell you what, sometimes it takes some fasting and prayer like Jesus told the disciples. Well, not sometimes, every time. Because you've you got to get rid of you. That's what the problem is. And there'll come a time in your life, I don't care who you are, if you get truly saved, the devil's going to come and tempt you with beginning to think that you're a pretty good Christian. That's what happened to the disciples. It's time for us to remember the little child and do the little things. The things that nobody takes attention of, nobody takes notice of. But not doing them in hopes that someday somebody will notice me. But doing them in the name of Jesus. Amen? And understand that the struggle that it is going to take... is going to be more of a struggle than having that great weight tied around my neck and trying to swim with 500 pounds attached to me. You're not going to do it. You see, you cannot win the struggle unless it's Jesus only. But as great as a struggle it is not to offend other people, it's three times the struggle. Not to be offended yourself. Because it's only Jesus that will keep you humble. It's only when Jesus is everything that nothing else matters. The reason other things matter is because Jesus is in all in all. parameters for the kingdom. The marks of the kingdom of God with power. We can put it in two words. Jesus only. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, there are some people that are sitting in this room that are not saved. The problem is, it's not Jesus only. Lord, we ask that you would move them at least one step closer today. If not, bring them to a point where they would just surrender to you. Be saved. Lord, there are many out here today that have accepted Jesus as their Savior. They've given testimony of that, both privately and publicly through baptism. And in their attendance, even here today, they confirm that testimony. Lord, their eyes are people word instead of Jesus word. We ask that today would be that day they draw the line in the sand, so to say, and say, no more people, Jesus only. Maybe there's someone here today, Lord, 
as a preacher, I'm certainly unaware of it, that would be struggling to be the greatest. They would be trying to promote themselves in some way. Lord, I pray that today they would be convicted by the Holy Spirit of God. That there is not even the things that the Bible says that we have authority and ability to do can be done without Jesus filling us and working in us. Lord, we pray for those that would be struggling even to do the cup of cold water expecting something, that they would surrender that all to Jesus today. And then, Lord, we get to this last one, the most difficult of all. The struggling not to offend others and the even greater struggle of not to be offended ourselves. And, Lord, we lay ourselves at your feet because it's only Jesus working in us, completely overriding and overriding everything that we are that can give us any peace in this struggle. It cannot be won by human effort. Lord, what we're praying for as we talk about these things is that we would see the kingdom of God with power in the lives of the individuals that make up the membership of this church. And Lord, that together we could see you rule and reign and Get glory through this church. Lord, we put our pleas at your feet today and ask you to work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.